This week's episode is sponsored by Amarsis. Now, granted, I, I think we have an interesting challenge, which is we need to compete with a whole number of other competitors in many different categories. So, and each category is slightly different. So, for example, our jewelry ecosystem and how we merchandise that and developed it is very different than the way we might develop and merchandise our knifeware or, or plateware. And in each one, you have to take a slightly different editorial or, or merchandising approach that no amount of data will kind of drive you to the right decision. Instead, you actually need a, a level of curation or content that just blending art with science like is more art-driven there. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. What does it take to build a successful brand, especially when in this day and age, everyone and everything is a brand? And how do you create a marketplace that is differentiated, a destination that is engaging, even valuable for the audience in a way that allows you to stand out from all of the other marketplaces that are out there? I had a lot of questions as I was researching for this conversation today with Jeremy Kai, founder and CEO of Italic. Now, their business model is truly fascinating. Jeremy will explain it better than I do, but at a high level, they essentially have built direct relationships with manufacturers of some of the world's top luxury brands. They help create high-quality, label-free products, essentially identical to luxury counterparts. In the end, this creates a very beneficial relationship and business model, not just for Italic, but for their manufacturer partners and, of course, for consumers. This is the foundation for a very comprehensive business model that digs into a lot of the challenges and topics that are very top of mind right now for retailers. So listen in. Jeremy has a lot to say, and their business is so fascinating. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Jeremy, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, and we have a lot to get into. But first, let's get into the backstory of Italic. What initially inspired you to start the company? Sure. My family's been in manufacturing for 30, 40 years. And I think the longer you spend time in manufacturing on that side of the business, the more you start to wonder, hey, I'm producing finished goods for someone else who buys them from me and sells them for five to 10 times what I sold it to them for. So you know, coming from a fairly, I guess, entrepreneurial and and tech-driven background, you look at this problem and it kind of stares you at the face in terms of, hey, a lot of other industries have been disintermediated by a very similar approach of taking a, a managed marketplace and delivering a fairly merchant-focused uh, approach to offering a better consumer product. And I think when we look at the real, I guess, idea of helping manufacturers, you know, we, we went through so many different iterations. And I think the business model that ultimately was the one we continued with was one where we wanted to align incentives between manufacturers, customers, and also ourselves as a business. Yeah, it's truly fascinating. Like as I really got to dig into the site and how you're communicating that value to the end consumer, and kind of how you work backwards and turn that into a business model that you can communicate to the broader industry. I just want to go into that a little bit just for our audience, because I I really do think it's fascinating. So in a nutshell, it seems like you've been able to successfully forge direct relationships with 
manufacturers to create these high-quality, label-free products, essentially identical to luxury counterparts, right? So, like, how did you go about bridging this gap, building these connections, and ultimately creating that value for the consumer? Because I think that's important to note that it's beneficial for you, Italic, as a business, for manufacturers, and ultimately the consumer. Sure. I think the best way to answer that is just to start first from the value proposition. Most of us, when we speak externally, typically the way people look at the company is it's a consumer brand. We offer a line of high quality, really well-made essentials all over women's fashion, small leather goods, men's home. Nowadays, we're doing quite well in in beauty and, and pets. But underneath the hood is really where the model gets more interesting. And to your point, that's where we've kind of built out these relationships over not just a lifetime of this business, but for many, many years and really leaned into kind of the business development and sourcing component of our team. So underneath the consumer brand, we operate more like a managed marketplace, like I mentioned previously. So really, uh, over the past couple of years, we think of the business as a B2B2C component. And the B2B side is really where we spent most of our, our attention and time mainly because we've really, you know, like any marketplace, there's a chicken and egg problem of needing to either crack the supply in order to get the demand and and vice versa. And for us, we have fairly differentiated supply that if you don't get really, really right early on, it kind of puts you into a very different category of operating of which there's many other players. So for us, our manufacturers are the same as those behind high-end brands whom it may seem like we compete with, but in reality, our customer set, I, I don't think if you ask them, would say Italic is competing directly with the, the same brand. You know, If you buy a branded version of one of our products, you're probably always going to buy the branded version. Whereas for us, we want to offer the value-driven default. So if you want to have the same quality, but you don't care so much about having the, the brand or the label on it, which is not for everyone, but at a much higher value price point, meaning you're getting the same thing, but for a whole lot less, we're playing quite well there. So the manufacturers, really, they're incentivized by optimizing kind of yield on their existing production capacity. So a manufacturer makes money by taking margin on the products that they produce, typically in the range of 15 to to 25%. They sell that to someone else, typically nowadays directly to a brand. Historically, it might have been to a number of trading companies or, or distributors or middlemen before ultimately landing in a, in a brand. But for the most part, what we offer to them is a way to increase yield on existing production. So if I used to make a shirt or, or let's say a hoodie for $16, my margin is typically, to be very generous about this, like let's say $4, which is 25%, I'll sell that to a brand, whether it's legacy, direct-to-consumer, heritage, doesn't really matter. That's how I make money. I take a cost plus approach. They buy that for me and they'll sell that conservatively by the time it ends up at a customer, whether it's again direct to consumer or wholesale or distributed for let's say a hundred bucks. So on a hundred dollar transaction, a manufacturer is making four dollars. And if you're on the manufacturer's side, you really only have two ways of expanding your business. You can either expand by getting new clients, which in and of itself is not an easy feat these days, or you can expand your business with your existing clients, which again is is not the easiest thing to do. But really what we bring to the table is a way to essentially use our existing infrastructure, um, both the fulfillment uh, network we, we've built, the, the distribution to our customer base, the storefront, our backend kind of merchant systems, so that you can take inventory risk for the first time 
But in doing so, you're able to earn a whole lot more per product while we still keep the consumer prices low. So to take that same example, instead of making $4 per hoodie, you might make $8 or $12 or even $16. But does that actually matter to a customer who's getting a $100 value product or let's say 20 or 30 bucks? That's still a great deal on their books. So in terms of the relationships with the manufacturers, we really go in with an, a full stack kind of vertically integrated model where we do all of the heavy lifting from start to finish and all they really have to focus on is production. So in many ways, you can think of it kind of as like an outsourced, fully managed private label program for them. And as a result, you know, here's a new distribution method that if, again, if you're a manufacturer, you don't really have a means of increasing your business. So I think especially in the supply chain wake of, of the past couple of years, you know, many of these manufacturers around the world, whether you're talking about in the US or China or Italy or Southeast Asia or what have you, they really see this as a continual trend that's been growing, I would say, over the past five to 10 years. And I think in many ways, they've seen the rise of e-com, they've seen the rise of their client base, especially those who have shifted over to serving you know, a lot of these newer upstart brands. And I think many of them are asking the same thing. They're family-run businesses. A lot of them by now are second-gen, third-gen families who have younger owners who are looking at e-commerce and saying, hey, we should somehow play in that. But as a manufacturer, you don't really have many means to. You could try to sell on Amazon where you're going to be washed out in, a, in an ocean of kind of hard to differentiate quality, or you could be selling on you know a lower end marketplace where again, you're being washed out in terms of the differentiation, or you can take the italic approach where we essentially do all that for you while positioning the product in a very high end way, which is true. So that's really kind of how we've gone about pitching the, the business. But I think in terms of the actual connections, I, I would say for many different ways, these are not small mom and pop manufacturers. Many of them are doing hundreds of millions in, in wholesale or inventory value, which is being turned obviously for many times that in, in, in consumer value. And really for these manufacturers, they've been around for 50, sometimes 60, 70, sometimes even 100 years. And this is the first time when many of them are, are looking at us and we're asking them essentially, hey, make product for us you're going to pay for it, unlike every other client that's paid for it in a deposit or you know, on your payment terms. And you're only going to get paid when, when we sell through it for you. So it's not an easy pitch by any means. And we really had to stretch deep in terms of our value proposition and, and building those tight business development and sourcing relationships. But I think in the long term, it builds a very, very highly differentiated supplier base that very few companies in the world really have. So it's taken a lot of time and a ton of effort, but I think in the long run, it, it'll be a, a moat that we are proud of defending both from technology, our product development standpoint, and the software that we use to orchestrate the supply chain. That is so fascinating, Jeremy. Thank you for sharing so much detail because I could tell how intricate and multifaceted all of this is. And it really, I think, aligns with a lot of the conversations we've been having with retailers, a lot of the news we've seen around supply chain challenges, like you indicated, but also around the urgency for a lot of brands around diversifying their partnerships and also building those partnerships so they can drive that value and they can develop systems and ways to collaborate with their suppliers in a way that's valuable and profitable for everyone. So I'm sure there are a lot of folks that uh, were writing down some notes when you're answering that last question. But I'm curious how this kind of all of these processes, the technology you've built, how you've you've developed the economics around this model, right? Really fascinating stuff for me, but I'm sure there's almost a valuable way to communicate this 
outward to the customers, right? Because it ultimately drives value for them. I think the fact that it's luxury quality goods, maybe without the logos and and without the branding components surrounding it, like that's one thing. But I mean, how do you go about educating or building trust around this model, if that's required at all, right? Like I know pricing, obviously, the pricing is pretty reasonable from what I saw. So that's probably not an issue. But how do you like validate the quality or the value of the model to consumers, especially those who have just come to your site for the first time? Sure. That's a great question. And one that I think is is arguably the one that we have the most work to do on. The most common you know, response what we'll see, whether it's on an ad or email or social or support ticket is, is, hey, this seems too good to be true. Like, how does it actually work? What's the catch? And the catch is it's not for everyone. You know, I, I think in many ways, we see ourselves as the rational purchase. Whereas if you're purchasing from a brand, you're really not really purchasing for value. There's always something cheaper. And there's always something that you can find the, the second option for. We actually just want to be the best second option possible in very high value categories where the spend and the savings potential is, is quite high. So I think from a customer perspective, there's really three ways that we kind of think about this. The first is we're actually never going to be the cheapest. That's not the position we, we want to take. And nowadays, especially as the direct-to-consumer or some may call the digitally native, kind of vertically integrated brand has really rolled out across the landscape. There's not as much, I guess, consumer appeal to hearing the same pitch that 10 years ago was so powerful. You know, the whole thing around cutting out the middleman and kind of direct-to-consumer driving value. The reality is those savings had by and large been been erased by advertising costs. 10 years ago, when it was an uncompetitive online advertising market for the for brands, the value proposition of cutting out the middleman was very true. You're, the middleman that was being cut out at the time was the retailer. So a customer may expect to save 20, 30, 40, sometimes even 50% on a product that they otherwise would need to purchase for a whole lot more through direct distribution or, or sorry, for um, through retail distribution. But as the environment and ecosystem had grown, and now, of course, you look on Instagram or you look on any trade show, whether it's offline, online, there's a huge sea of new brands that have come up in the wake of kind of those early upstarts that savings potential really had been erased. And nowadays, the middleman, the biggest middleman, of course, of all is always going to be the brand margin is still there and live to this day. And, and if anything, stronger than ever before. So I think for us, we can't wholly rely on the cutting out the middleman narrative, mainly because it's such a, a tired kind of thing that, that customers have heard so many times and, and now have probably come to believe is not necessarily true in their purchasing, especially since so many people by now have purchased something online from one of these so-called brands that they've never heard of before. And nowadays have become mainstay kind of everyday brands akin to heritage or, or legacy. But I think for us, like we actually don't think of ourselves as competing on price. It's really, if you want something cheaper, you can always go to a discount retailer or you can go to a online marketplace where everything is unbranded, but you're also, it's a true marketplace in the sense of there's going to be a huge amount of volume, but very little curation. I think the value that we bring is that level of kind of editorial product development that you can expect from an ecosystem of products. So if you buy our cashmere sweater, for example, and you see our cookware, you would generally know the the value and quality that you'd expect from that, which is, of course, the, the whole point of a brand. But in our case, the value of it is that you're saving kind of a lot of money by reducing the, the brand margin. We make money on 
kind of a number of ways, whether it's merchant fees or commissions or or the membership, which I know we'll get into. But but for the most part, I think for the customer, we need to kind of show them that, hey, this is not just a cheap thing for the sake of being cheap. And it's also not purely just cutting out the middleman, but really we, we spent a lot of time on, on product development and it's actually good product that we're selling that we're really proud of standing behind. So I think on, on the first part, we're definitely not the cheapest. So therefore, the second point is we need to substantiate the quality. We do that a number of ways. I think for any direct-to-consumer brand, nowadays the advantage we have is we're not trying to create the market, right? A lot of the categories we operate in, there's already highly established direct-to-consumer players. And that's actually our preference. We don't want to be market creators. And again, we don't want to be competing in the same vector as, as these brands. Instead, our point really is to substantiate like, hey, this is high quality product and it's up to you whether you want the brand version or not. And the way we substantiate the quality is by one, very explicitly saying like, hey, this is an industry secret. Everyone in this industry knows that these high-end brands use these manufacturers. If you go to a manufacturer, whether again, it's in the States or Europe or Asia or wherever it is, you'll see like competitive products right there on a production line. They'll also have it in the factory booklets and, and manufacturer profiles. So it's a well-known fact of the industry, but we're surfacing it to the consumer, which is to say this same product was made by the same manufacturer as these premium or luxury brands. And how are you able to get this quality at a lower price point? Well, because you're buying straight from the factory as opposed to buying from a brand. So even though in many ways you could argue Italica's brand to the customer, our value proposition is here's a brand where you can buy straight from the manufacturer. And that's why it's a high value kind of price point. And then the second way, of course, is just by doing everything else that the direct-to-consumer brands have kind of really laid out the playbook for, which is to substantiate the quality through really product-driven marketing. So product shots, really great photography, substantiating the, the materials, things that you can't do offline, but are very straightforward. And, and frankly, by this point, expected of online players to do. So we invest a lot into our storefront and, and customer experience. And of course, the other component of all of this is, hey, can we offer great shipping? Can we offer great unboxing? All the stuff that customers have come to expect from shopping online, we want to be on par with really premium players. We don't want to be better because that's not the, the game we play, but but rather we want to be on par. And then the third point really is speaking to the customers in a way that treats them intelligently. Customers today are, are more informed than ever before. Things that you might be able to have, you know, get away with 10 years ago aren't necessarily taken at face value anymore just because a product has some registered trademark material or just because it's certified in some way doesn't really mean that the customer believes that. You know, you can see on any Reddit forum or blog or, or kind of in almost every category, there's so much information out there that customers have access to. So for us, like we really need the product to substantiate that quality so that when they purchase, it's not a surprise that it's not what they expected. So in terms of the messaging to customers, really the way we frame it is, look, if you're going to buy the branded version of a product, there is no way we can compete with that. If you want to buy a branded, very outwardly facing product for, let's say, a handbag, that's totally fine. And we will never kind of win in that sector. But on the flip side, that same customer doesn't necessarily want a branded version on their cookware that they purchase, or let's say the, the bedding that they purchase. But at different customers, that same value proposition might be flipped. Someone who really is particular about having the best of the best cookware may not actually care about having a logo on their handbag. So when we're actually doing our product marketing, we try to focus on the technical aspects to justify like, hey, this is a premium product that we say it is, not just because we say it's premium, but rather 
these technical features that substantiate that claim. And to an educated customer, or at least one where we treat them as educated, I think they appreciate that so that when they're buying into an ecosystem, you know, we're top of mind when it comes to, I bought my bedding from them, I had a great experience, I'm going to buy my candle or sweater or dress or whatever it is, and I trust that they're going to do a good job with it. So that's really how we approach it. But again, we're not the cheapest option in the market, and we never will be. We want to be the best value option in the market. Are you a marketer looking to hit it out of the park with better one-to-one interactions with consumers? Then look no further. Customer engagement platform Mimarsis is holding a series of omni-channel strategy workshops across the U.S. this summer to help those with a goal of creating a consistent brand experience. To find out how Mimarsis can help you, visit www.mimarsis.com. I think it how you convey this message through the different things like you brought up photography, user experience, you know, from initial discovery all the way through to unboxing and even just the overall browsing experience that word editorial really stuck out to me in your response. So I want to drill into that a little bit because what I noticed is that the e-commerce site or storefront is very curated, very, I guess you could say high touch, like you can tell that there's thought and care put into that experience. So for example, not just what's trending, but curated by Italic, chosen by our experts. I'm curious whether this was kind of baked into the model from the beginning in order to communicate that value to the market and how you see this approach kind of impacting customer engagement or even just overall discovery on the site? Like, are you seeing that people are spending more time browsing because it is such an editorial approach and it's more about like the joy of the journey, the joy of the discovery? I'm curious how that's shaken out for you in terms of effectiveness. Yeah, I mean, I think you can take that many different ways. But I think the the real center of, of all of this is when you're launching a brand, what you're trying to do is establish or at least a newcomer that customers are not aware of, or maybe are seeing for the first time, what you're trying to establish is trust, first and foremost. And there's a number of ways you can establish that, have it through people talking about it with their friends, which is by all regards, like the best way to do so, but not everyone can grow that way or you can't really grow quickly or force that to happen. You just have to deliver a really great experience to, to do so. So the b- next best option is to, again, treat customers as, as really intelligent and give them information for them to make a decision on. You know, granted, I, I think we have an interesting challenge, which is we need to compete with a whole number of other competitors in many different categories. So, and each category is slightly different. So for example, our jewelry ecosystem system and how we merchandise that and developed it is very different than the way we might develop and merchandise our knifeware or, or plateware. And in each one, you have to take a slightly different editorial or, or merchandising approach that no amount of data will kind of drive you to the right decision. Instead, you actually need a, a level of curation or content that just blending art with science like is more art driven there. So on our side, to establish trust, really the, the goal is to present as much relevant information about the product. Customers come to us not because of our brand, unlike others where when you're establishing trust, it might be because of how cool it looks or how on trend it looks or because you saw it on social media. But rather for us, it's quite the opposite where people come to Italic for the first time because they see a product ad that kind of is strong. They go to the site experience. It looks trustworthy. We've done a lot of merchandising on our best products and it substantiates the claim to really, in their mind, justify like, hey, 
I am not being swindled here, but rather it is of the quality that they say it is. And it's that's why they're able to charge this great price point on it. So I think that's important for us to know. But once you buy into the ecosystem and you have that customer trust, you have that really great first order experience, you have a lot of goodwill with the customer and you have a lot more permission to, frankly, screw up in the next couple orders that they place because they have that first memory in their mind of like, oh, this was a really good experience. And when I need to buy something new, we're not a high frequency we have a couple, like, for example, our beauty products, but but we're not a high frequency kind of shopping experience where you're going to come back and we're going to try to sell you stuff every single day of the year, but rather it's highly considered product when when you want to purchase something and it's not cheap and it's an important purchase in your lifestyle or home or wardrobe. We're one of the places that you look to and whether you choose us or not because you want the brand or the value-driven approach, we index well because you trust us. So I think that curation and an editorial lens is really important for us. It doesn't mean you know, it's for every brand. There's a lot of brands out there that can get away with just brand alone and you, do, you have no software or consumer digital experience that needs to substantiate it because the customer is so driven to the product for other means. We don't have that. But I think that's where we recognize is a reason for customers to purchase from other brands is not a, a place for us to compete in. We're not the cool brand on the block. And that's okay by us. We want to be the value-driven brand on the block. I love that. I think, yeah, I think that notion of building trust and credibility among consumers, especially new consumers, is something that's very top of mind for a lot of brands and retailers now. And I know also that a lot of our listeners are thinking about new approaches to not just getting that initial acquisition, but that retention, right? Getting people to have a reason to come back to them time and time again, knowing that, okay, this brand is going to deliver, but I'm also going to get a lot of value every time I engage with them. And I think that notion of value is really interesting because it's kind of evolving, right? Like like you said, it's not always about price. Like there are so many other places where you can go to get something sort of good quality, but for, you know, a good price. And like, sometimes that's good enough, right? But this is why the topic of loyalty programs and memberships are so fascinating to me, because I'm seeing so many great, interesting approaches, ones that are very distinct to each brand, ones that are trying to create these moments of trust, credibility, and even relationship building. So I wanted to make sure we spoke about that a little bit because you have a membership model, Italic Bold. And I wanted to just kind of get your take on what you believe are some of the key differentiators and value drivers. Like I know you do things like credits for product reviews and on-demand gifting concierge, which I think is so, so fun and, and so valuable. But of course, early access to products, right, which a lot of programs have. So I mean, what was the intention and approach for developing the membership model, Italic Bold? And how are you seeing consumer response shake out in terms of like certain perks that are more valuable versus others? And how are you using consumer insight to kind of shape the future of that program? Sure. We have taken an interesting journey with membership programs over the years. We, we started out as a members only program where all of the initial customers basically got a free membership. We did away with the membership. We brought it back and went members only for a year. And now we're, we're back into kind of square one where it's an upgrade pick where for our best and most loyal shoppers, you know, it's a, it's a very clear kind of no brainer that drives a lot of value over the course of many, many years, hopefully to our members. So, and over the course of that journey, I think we've learned a whole lot about loyalty programs and memberships. And I can't say we figured it out more than let's say the anyone else, but I think we've certainly learned a bit. I think at the core, we've seen 
memberships or subscriptions come in really four flavors. You have those that are really the membership or the subscription is the product itself. So think of like your classic subscription boxes. You have essentially memberships that are or subscriptions that again are the service itself, but it's for content. So think of your classic Spotify's or Netflix's of the world where you're paying for the membership or the subscription to the service, but you don't have to pay additional beyond that because you're already getting the service delivered to you digitally and plenty of interesting plays there. Nike obviously has done one beyond physical goods now and has done quite well there. And then on the where we play is, is an interesting one, which is you actually have a paid membership, but in return, you need to deliver value to the customer while they're still purchasing more from you. There's a couple of programs like this. A lot of them will give you savings. We don't. That's not really what we found is what our customers want. And it also detracts from the core customer experience of, of a first-time shopper where you know if you become a member, you would get a better deal. Other programs like this might be like Restoration Hardwares. REI has a very famous one. Of course, everyone knows about Costco. And then lastly, you have like your classic loyalty programs with points. So your Nordstrom's or, I mean, so many people have this. And the reality is like all of them work and you can find shining examples of those programs and, and across the ecosystem, not just in, in retail, but also in, in consumer and, and globally as well. I think the one that we kept coming back to was that third one. And for a number of reasons, for one, we aren't offering content and we're also not offering a subscription box. So you can immediately rule out those two. And then on the fourth point, why we went for a kind of a credits or upgrade or service driven approach, as opposed to let's just say a points approach where the more points you get, you go up in the tiers, classic Sephora, classic Nordstrom's experience. Those all are, are great as well. But I think for us, when you are a new brand on the block, it's really, you don't have the same cachet or legacy as, of course, legacy brands or, or heritage you know, retailers for that exact reason. You can't necessarily expect your customers to spend themselves into a place where they have a meaningful points balance where you know they can gain benefits from it. And also you're starting off from a place where not many people are, are aware of, of the product, so they don't really care about the loyalty product until it, it's become fairly I guess the consumer awareness around the brand is is there. So I think for us, one, we're online, so we don't have the same. And, and by the way, I know you mentioned this. There are very few companies in the categories that we play in that actually have, I know everyone will say like, oh, we focus on retention or we focus on like almost no fashion company, very, very few home companies will have a purchase frequency of above one per year. And that's just the reality of, of the like direct consumer commerce. People might say they do, but like the reality is they don't. And we know this very clearly. I think for us, like one of the first things we wanted to build a business on is not being single category. So not just being in fashion, not just being in home, but rather providing that true ecosystem and, and lifestyle of product. And again, I know a lot of people talk about lifestyle, but very few people have the assortment to actually substantiate that. In our case, you can buy the bedding that you wake up in. You can buy the clothes in your wardrobe that you dress in. You can buy the cookware that you cook your breakfast in. You could buy the backpack or bags that you use to go to work in all the way to the point of when you travel or when you take a bath or, or whatever it is. We want to play in that regard. But again, in all of those categories, one, they're heavily brand dominated. And if you want to buy the branded version, you're going to buy the branded version, but we want to be the default non-branded version. And then on the frequency side, those are highly considered very infrequent purchases. So how do you get people to think about Italic from, from every purchase that they're making that's high value in their home and, or lifestyle? So for us, like 
that membership program, the reason why we have credits and the reason why we have gifting and the reason why we have Thank You Tuesdays and the reason why we have these early access programs is to really treat those customers in a way where, yes, you could say like we treat them special and, and drive behavior that we, we want to see from a, a revenue perspective or retention perspective or frequency, but really it's most of all to stay top of mind. So you've already committed to us. You might as well buy this product for whatever highly considered purchase you're making. And hopefully over the course of you know many years, you'll have a life, a true lifestyle where Italic has taken over a meaningful swath of, of your purchases. Not all. And again, if you wanted the branded version, you're going to buy the branded version. But hopefully when you have those rational or value-driven purchasing decisions, we're top of mind. And membership really is our way of kind of amping that up by putting dollars behind it for the customers. Oh, that's great. And I love your point about retention because it is something that has been getting a lot of play lately. I know cost per acquisition is incredibly high right now and it's a struggle, especially for D2C brands. We've been seeing that be a really hot topic right now. But I think that distinction that you made around just like purchase frequency and how that impacts things definitely definitely plays a role. So thank you for calling that out. And I guess that leads me to my next question around just like all of the ways that you're attempting to continue to drive awareness of italic more collectively, of italic bold. I mean, what channels and tactics have you found to be especially valuable for communicating your mission and your unique approach to doing business? I mean, is social really big because of your editorial approach? What do you find has been most effective for you? Yeah, you know, I think in retail, there's there's a lot of sheep, <laughs> to be very blunt about it, where every couple of years, there's a new trend, you know, five years ago, everyone was every and I'm talking about the direct consumer kind of like upstart category, not the legacy ones. But five years ago, like everyone was opening a store, probably, I would say maybe 80 90% of those stores like have never worked up until this point, and probably will never work for those brands. A couple of years ago, people wanted to move off of Facebook. So and that's a Pre-event, like that's been a thing for not just past you know a couple of years, but like basically until since Facebook started, people wanted to diversify Facebook and Google, so they went to podcast, and that's actually a really really hard channel to see drive efficiency on. Influencer, of course, is a channel that everyone talks about. Same thing, like people love to talk about it, but the reality is it's a really hard channel to drive acquisition or, or scale acquisition in the same way that Facebook works, which is programmatic and, and pixel-based. And nowadays, people talk about TV or out of home. And a couple of years ago, blogs, everyone wanted to create a blog just because a certain beauty brand's blogs built the brand for them early on. And I think the hard truth there is very few brands are able to see that the efficiencies you need in a channel for those to be justifiable. You know, I remember like when catalogs and blogs were, were really kind of the in vogue topic for retail. There are a number of companies I know now, like looking back, they've tried the approach maybe three, four, sometimes even five times before finally just throwing in the towel and saying like, hey, work for them doesn't work for us. So for us, if I have to be perfectly candid, up until you're a certain scale, you're going to do performance marketing and you need to figure that out. Like it's actually the reality of just being a, an online first business. If it's not working for you, okay, maybe that's a sign that you probably should go omni-channel. Like it's not something to be ashamed of by any means. And in fact, I think is probably the healthier option for most brands out there. For Italic, we really want to be online only. And of course, there's, uh, I don't want to, be burned at the stake when, when one day we open a store. But I think the truth is like for a very 
long period of time and, and hopefully into meaningful scale, we're only going to be digital and we want to get really good at performance marketing. It's not the sexy thing to say. And it's also not the easy thing to say, because I think a lot of people try it, doesn't work and give up, but it's the most efficient and it's the biggest market. So yes, this year has been difficult for those who are dependent on certain performance channels. But I think in the long run, it's a place where we feel like we want to make the investment. And it's not just in performance marketing alone, it's in the entire digital ecosystem of product that I think if you have a tech team or kind of a tech bend per se, it's in your best interest to try to scale there. I know that kind of runs against popular belief, but we don't actually want to diversify off of our performance channels for as long as we can. So uh, yeah, maybe counter to some of the other narratives, but I think for us, that's what works. I love stories that are counter to narratives, so you're in the right place. No, I, and I appreciate the transparency too, because I think it's so easy for us to just kind of kind of follow the flow of whatever the hype cycle brings us. And you know, for some, it works really well. But I think knowing the root of your business model and what has been effective and how to continue to capitalize on that mix, I mean, I think that's top of mind for a lot of marketers. Um, so maybe next time we have you on, or maybe we'll do something for retail touch points on the site where we dig into those performance marketing strategies and tactics a little bit more because I would definitely be curious to dig into that a little bit. But we are almost out of time. But before we go, I do want to kind of get your perspectives on some of the holistic issues that we're seeing retail businesses focus on. Obviously, this has been a very volatile time for a lot of businesses, a lot of people, right? Like, let's get to the heart of it, right? Like, it's, it's just been challenging for us individually, which of course ties to how top of mind and how crucial company culture has been, obviously, as the founder and leader for the business, you drive the vision, right? And you drive the people. And Italic was named one of Fast Company top 10 most innovative retail companies of 2021, which is fantastic. A lot of it was driven by your business model, your memberships, basically everything we talked about today. So my question for you is, how do you kind of support this culture of innovation and pushing those performance tactics and building your business at the executive level? Because I know, again, a lot of people are stressed out, some are burnt out. And it's kind of a cycle, right? Like we want to inspire innovation, but like how much do we push and how do we encourage it in a way that is supportive of our people? So I don't know if you have any particular thoughts on that or what has resonated for your team, but I always try to bring in some of these higher level conversations points since it is such a top of mind issue right now. Sure. It's, I mean, we could talk all day about it, but I, I think <laughs> um, if we take a step back and look at the category that we, we operate in, the good news is that it's gigantic and there's thousands of players. And, and one thing that we've all learned is it's not one player is going to, it's, it's not zero sum. Like it's, it's not going to be one player that dominates the market. And anyone who has believed that in the past, I think has really come to regret that belief. And that's in every single category in retail. The bad news, however, is that retail is so big and has so many competitors and is what I think is the most competitive industry in the world. So in many ways, you kind of get to pick your own player there where you get to define the type of culture and, and company you want to build. And again, on the good side is there's a lot of patterns and, and examples of companies that have been built slowly, gradually, and drove really high quality growth over the course of not three, four or five years, but rather decades. 
And frankly, that's a very low stress way to build a business and not necessarily what a lot of the folks who, who raise money want to see or hear, but is probably the most fail safe way to do so and do a good job there. And on the culture side, it does not mean you need to be innovative. It means you need to pick a strategy and stick to it and execute day in, day out, month in, month out for many, many years. And that's totally fine. There's many, many companies that have been built with that exact playbook. On the counterpoint, we did raise money. And, and whether that was a good decision or not, I think what we'll see in, in a couple of years. But I think for those who did raise money and, and have these hyper growth dreams, we're choosing to take the stressful route. It's not for lack of clarity or decision making. It was deliberate. And if you do choose to kind of play in the super competitive market of retail and you want to choose the, the high growth route, you, you kind of need to be a little bit stressed. Like stress is not inherently a, a bad thing if managed correctly across the organization. And you have to be a little bit confrontational in terms of retail expectations. The natural state of retail is frankly exceptionally slow. Things take very, I mean, it's also built into the business, right? You have very long development cycles, you have ocean freight, which I mean, over the past two years, we all know how tough that's been. And you have an increasingly competitive ecosystem that is getting, the world is shrinking, right? Like you now have competitors overseas that can ship directly to your customers. You have online competitors, you know, so on and so forth. So I think when we're talking about a culture of innovation at, at the executive level, really, I think the way you build that is, is twofold. And this is my opinion as, as a just more of a, a tech-enabled company is, is one, you need to actively seek it out in the people that you're, you're bringing on. And what I mean by that is not everyone you bring on can have that prestigious worked at XYZ company for 10, 20 years. They frankly are probably not going to innovate in a way that is appropriate for your business. Can they execute yeah, absolutely. But I think from if you want to see fresh ideas, you kind of have to look outside of retail. And I think that's where so much value has been granted over the past five to 10 years on, on the domestic side and even more, so, definitely more so on the on the Asia side. So I think for us, like the two ways we kind of manifest this on the executive level is one, don't just hire from retail, like hire outsiders because they will be naive, but they will also have, frankly, more fresh ideas that probably have not been tried in recent years in retail. And that's where I think for us, like we've gotten a lot of benefit from seeing. And then secondly, it really matters a lot that you have that founder or kind of strategy not change for a long period of time. Again, we chose to go the more stressful route. And again, that that may or may not be the right choice for us and most companies. But I think since we have gone this route, like we now need to just be in a place where we don't change the strategy unless there's some really good reason to, and we just need to crank on it. Most innovation doesn't take like, a day or it doesn't happen overnight. It, it's kind of very long periods of executing towards an innovative direction or strategy and the executives need to be bought into it. If they're not or if they're resistant to it, and that's why I think the blend of outsiders versus retail executives or veterans is so powerful is you get both external insight into things that other industries might do potentially better. There are a lot of retail, I think we've realized now is just done because it's been done for many, many decades. Very few times in history do you actually look back and ask like, oh, was that actually the best way to do things? So I think that outsider perspective is helpful. But at the same time, the bar for ramping up in retail is very high. If you want to develop a product, it sure helps a ton to have meaningful competency or, or domain expertise in that area. So I think that's why the combination is so potent. And I think in terms of innovation, that's really what we look for.
That's amazing, Jeremy. Well, this time has flown by and I feel like we can talk for hours and hours because there are so many layers to the business. Your areas of expertise are vast and your transparency is very much appreciated. So we'll have to do this again sometime soon. But for now, I'm going to let you go. Thank you again so much for taking the time out to join me today. Before I do let you go, though, any final takeaways or action items for the other CEOs or maybe even founders that are listening to this conversation and are looking for any recommendations or even words of inspiration? Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you want to call out? I think the main one might just be you get to choose the company that you want to build. And it's not an external decision, but I think the earlier you make that in a company lifecycle, and it's a black and white decision. It's not a gray area, you know, let's flip-flop every couple months. The sooner you make that and the the harder you commit to it, I think the better off you will be in the long run because you're going to have a clear North Star to kind of point at and, and decision-making across the entire company will be clearer. So if I could do it all over again, I wish I did that. And I wish we were more committed to the direction so that we wouldn't have so many detours, but that's the life of a startup. So that's what you signed up for. But yeah, I think you're alive as long as you don't give up. So don't give up. That's all I have to say. Love that. Jeremy Kai, founder and CEO of Italic. So great to meet you, Jeremy. Thank you again so much for taking the time out to chat with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. And to all of you, if you have any follow-up questions for Jeremy or want to continue the conversation, please do so. We're on social media at our touch points or on LinkedIn at Retail Touch Points. Or if you have any specific feedback on this episode or the series as a whole, leave us a rating and review. We're on all major podcast networks. And of course, if you're looking for more great conversations like this, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, frankly, anywhere else. We have a rich archive of conversations like this one. So you can go back, listen in, and of course, subscribe so you can get a new episode delivered to your device every week. Thank you again for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.